Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Future of Health with Providence St. Joseph Health. I'm your host, Mary Renoff, bringing you the latest in healthcare trends and news each week. Today, I'm joined by Paula Skomsky, a nurse practitioner with the Providence Intervention Center for Assault and Abuse. She's also the founder of Peoria Home. Today, we're also joined by survivor consultant Shelley, and we're talking about how we can fight sex trafficking and support survivors. Remember, everyone, if you have questions for our experts, please share them with us on social media. We can be found on Twitter at PSJH and on Facebook under Providence St. Joseph Health. Use the hashtag Future of Health and we'll be on the lookout for your questions. That's hashtag Future of Health. Before we start, I want our listeners to know that the information provided during this program is for educational purposes only. You should always consult your healthcare provider if you have any questions regarding a medical condition or treatment. The following topic contains content that may be triggering for some listeners. Anyone affected by sex trafficking, whether it happened to you or someone you care about, can find support on the National Human Trafficking Hotline by calling 1-888-373-7888. Again, that number is 1-888-373-7888. Okay, let's get started by welcoming our guests, Paula and Shelley. Paula, tell me a little bit about your role as a forensic nurse examiner with Providence Intervention Center. So I've been a forensic nurse examiner with Providence since 2004, and what a forensic nurse is is someone who provides medical care to victims of sexual and physical violence. So child abuse, child sexual assault, elder abuse, domestic violence, any kind of interpersonal violence, and that's what th- those are the patients that we see. Um, well, so Shelley, you, if I'm not mistaken, are a survivor consultant, and what does that mean? Uh, That means that um, when there's questions uh, for programs or if there's something that they want to go over to make sure that it's just given. It's going to meet the needs of the people involved and maybe not be scary. Is that kind of coming from a survivor Mm -hmm. perspective, making sure that it's appropriate um, in line um, suggestions of how to make it better. Oh, that's amazing. It's good It's good that they have you then. And just, uh, I think we were talking offline, you've actually been doing this since 2014. So since, Paula, you started the program, you recruited Shelly, right? I did. Okay. And you had no say in the matter. You just were told to come over, right? Uh, <laughs> I didn't. I didn't really know at first, but she just kept calling me back and calling me back and calling me back for littlest things. And next thing I know, she's patting my knee and saying that everything's going to be okay. You guys have a great relationship. I can see that. And you guys can't see it because you can't see like video. But trust me, they are they are a golden couple over here. They are great people. <laughs> um, so in the work at Providence that you, you mostly see survivors of sex trafficking or sexual assault. Is that correct? Mostly see victims of any kind of interpersonal violence. But okay. included in that is our victims of sex trafficking here in Snohomish County. And is Snohomish County seeing the same statistics that nationwide we're seeing around this topic? I believe we're we're pretty close. Um, we're certainly seeing the same statistics as King County because many of our victims are moving back and forth between Seattle mm-hmm. and our area and Tacoma, up and down the I-5 corridor. Are your the t- people that you see, are they typically very transient and moving around a lot? Is that something that you see because of of the assault or that's just in general? Of trafficking victims, they're moved around a lot. Gotcha. Our general, ass- general assault, that doesn't sound very good. Um, our uh, sexual assault victims are usually local. Okay. okay. And how many people are you seeing in a given year? So the intervention center sees between 1,500 and 1,600 victims every year. 
of all types of interpersonal violence. And tell me, how did the center come to be? The center started back in 1997. Um, Sister Georgette, from Providence was instrumental in getting the, the the program started to provide sexual assault victims with more trauma-informed care, uh, more appropriate care than what they were receiving before. Um, she felt that it was very important for victims to be treated humanely and, and kindly. Um, and a lot of times that, that wasn't happening in the busy ER environment. And one of the nice things about your center, right, is that you get, you, you see people kind of in all forms, right? Like they get to have all of the experience, not that it's a great experience, but in, in the center with you. So they're not going to an emergency department and then a police department and then seeing a therapist somewhere else. That Everything's kind of all in one. Correct. Our clinic is located in Dawson Place Child Advocacy Center, downtown Everett. And located in that building is the prosecutor's office, the sheriff's department, Compass Health for mental health therapy. We have child interview specialists and their um, treatment dogs or therapy dogs. And then we have victim advocates and uh, the medical providers. So for those listening, kind of walk us through that experience. So somebody either gets referred to you or brought to you by, say, the police. How does it happen? How does somebody get to your doors? And then what happens from the moment they walk through? So there are a lot of different ways that patients get referred to us. Some are self-referrals. They know where we are, and um, they'll show up at the front desk and request services. Others are referred by CPS, law enforcement, primary care providers, other service providers in the community. When a patient arrives at Dawson Place, uh, for a medical exam anyway, they are brought back to the exam room by the medical assistant, uh, she gets vital signs, gets them registered. Uh, then I go down and talk with the victim or the parent or guardian of a, if it's a child. And um, we get an overall history of what happened. We review a medical history. And then we um, do a head-to-toe physical exam. If a disclosure is made um, during that exam and law enforcement and CPS have not been previously involved, we'll get them involved at that point. If they're already involved, then the patient is oftentimes scheduled for a forensic interview um, and may be referred to mental health for counseling and get that started. Okay. So you're seeing 1,500 to 1,600 people a year. Is that meeting the entire needs of the community or is that just as many as you can see but there's still a bigger need? Um, I believe that that's as many as are seeking services. Okay. I know that there are a lot more um, people in the community that have been assaulted in one way or another that have not reported and have not come forward for services. Okay. What, what are the main reasons people don't come forward? It's a difficult thing to talk about. Um, just uh, being assaulted is such a personal violation and people don't want to come forward and talk about it. They don't want people to find out. And a lot of times people aren't aware of the health risks involved mm -hmm. secondary to that, in, that assault. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I can speak from personal experience. It took me 16 years before I told my family. And when I did it, I did it in a blog post. So I didn't actually tell them ahead of time. Um, and it was it was very disconcerting for people. But I was a what they considered to be a fully functioning person who nobody would have thought that it happened. And it was that. I just didn't want to talk about it at the time because I was embarrassed that it had happened to me. And it did take me over 15 years to be comfortable talking about it. And even now, I'm not super comfortable. You might be able to hear my voice. But it was fear and it was fear of being judged and that was the biggest thing for me is that is that something that you're hearing from people often often yes and even in children they don't want anybody to know because they don't want people to think there's something wrong with them right right and actually having a medical exam and reassuring a child that they're okay that they're healthy and that people can't tell by looking at them that something's happened Mm -hmm is often what they need to start on that road to recovery. Well, the workers in in your center kind of run the whole gamut, right? So tell me about how many types of people are involved. So you've mentioned nurses, you've mentioned social workers. Who all is there? So we also have victim advocates. We have um, the child interview specialists. So those are specialists that have had extra training on specifically how to talk to children about these kinds of events in their lives. Um, We have the Compass Health mental health therapists who have all had extra training in trauma therapy. And then upstairs we have uh, the Sheriff's Department sexual assault unit and the prosecutor's sexual assault unit, as well as a CPS caseworker in the building. So those folks have all had extra training um, in how to work with victims of trauma. Well, we're going to have to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to dig in and talk a little bit more about Peoria Home.
And we're back with Future of Health. I'm your host, Mary Renoff, and I'm here with a gentle reminder that anyone affected by sex trafficking or sexual violence can find support at the National Human Trafficking Hotline by calling 1-888-373-7888. So now let's get back to our conversation. So tell me a little bit, Paula, how did you get into this area and, and why the focus on sex trafficking? So while I was working at the Intervention Center back in 2006, no, 2004, um, one of the detectives from Everett came to the Intervention Center and said, we have a problem here in Snohomish County that we're arresting girls for prostitution who are not old enough to legally consent to having sex um, and asked for information about how to reach out to them, how to provide services to them. And that was really before sex trafficking or human trafficking became um, a known thing or a very talked about thing. Um, It was happening in other parts of the country. We know that. And it was happening here, obviously. But we really didn't know for sure what we were looking at or how to even start. So a task force was formed um, with five of us uh, originally at the table to talk about this issue and try to learn more about what we were really seeing. And that's how I, my first introduction to domestic minor sex trafficking or commercially sexually exploited children, you'll hear mm-hmm. both of those descriptions, not to mention um, women involved. So um, from this task force, which eventually grew to about 30 people around the table from multiple different service agencies in the community, we realized that we have services in the community for under the age of 18. We have Cocoon House, which is an excellent teen shelter and they have a lot of programs. But when a girl turns 18, any services that she's been involved with basically disappear because now she's an adult and it's considered that she's choosing. Oh, that's so sad. This work. And that nobody really chooses this. No. So, Um, That's how I got involved in the work. In 2008, uh, or actually 2007, I was looking for Christmas gifts for my girlfriends. And I always try to buy my girlfriends things that support other women's programs because that's important to me. This is why we love you. (laughs) And I stumbled upon um, Thistle Farms Bath and Body Products. Thistle Farms is in Nashville. And they are a recovery program for women exploited through prostitution, trafficking, and addiction. And I read their story that Christmas, and I'm, I decided I needed to go and wow. learn how they ran their program because I really felt like we needed it here in Snohomish County. So I made my first trip to Nashville in 2008 in the spring and spent the day with the folks at Thistle Farms, and I was changed. You cannot spend a day with women who have survived life on the streets, who are so full of love and hope and joy and not be changed. And I came back and I started harping about, we need this here in Mm -hmm. Snohomish County. So in 2013, we formed a board finally and received our 501c3 status in 2014. And we opened our first resident um, recovery house in 2017, 18. 18. 
I get all these years wrong. So uh, 2018 and welcomed our first resident in April of that year. And so we've been open about a year and a half and um, it's going fairly well. And this is Peoria Home. That Peoria you're Home. Of. Yes. Okay. And why Peoria Home? Where did the name come from? So the name, um, when we were trying to determine a name for the program, things like Stepping Stone, Turning Leaf, that indicated a new beginning, they all seemed kind of worn out. Mm -hmm. And one of our volunteers suggested Peoria because in 1854, President Abraham Lincoln gave a speech in Peoria, Illinois, that was the turning point in his political career and the beginning of the Emancipation Proclamation to end slavery as we knew it at that time. So for us, Peoria indicates the turning point in a woman's life and her beginning journey to freedom. You have honestly given me chills. Mm. That's amazing. And part of our logo is a lantern because also during those days when slaves were Mm -hmm. trying to get free, um, lanterns would be left on in safe houses. So when they came out of the Underground Railroad, they knew where they could go because of the lantern in the window. So for us, the lantern is the symbol of, of a safe home. That's amazing. Symbolization is very important in, in the sex trafficking, right? Because I was somebody was telling me recently about like if there's a dot on your hand or something like that and there's code words, what are those? Those are um, tattoos, often branding by pimps to uh, mark their property. Mm. And so people like in emergency rooms, police officers, are they trained to look for these things? They're getting trained to look for those things. I'm going to say that training in the medical field is way behind the curveball. We did training here at Providence about a year, year and a half ago with our medical staff in the emergency department. Um, But a lot of medical providers have not had any training on what to look for or um, tattoos and their symbolism and things like that. And is the emergency room the most likely place that you would encounter a sex trafficking victim or even just a general physician's office? More likely you're going to see them in the emergency rooms, urgent centers, um, oftentimes uh, labor and delivery or OBGYN. Oh, that makes sense. If people go in for services there. And so those are the three areas that Providence targeted initially for training is the emergency departments, urgent cares, and OBGYN. And I know that Providence doesn't actually share the information or even really talk much publicly, but I do know that there have been several people that have been pulled out of trafficking due to that education. So it's, it's amazing the work that's being done. Um, Shelley, talk to us a little bit about your role with Peoria Home, what, what you do and how you came to be involved. Well, I came to be involved in uh, 2014 when um, I had to visit the sexual assault center myself. Um, I was really unsure when I first came in, but um, because of the extent of the encounter, um, I had to go to the assault center and get um, examined. Mm -hmm. And um, once Paula came in and just... (laughs) Her calm, loving nature. Um, by the, it was really hard not to open up. Um, I ended up seeing a stuffed animal on the wall that was for the children, and I grabbed it and I just let everything out of all the things I had been going through and all the different assaults, and um, that something had to change. And um, 
she kept finding a way to bring me back and again mm-hmm. and again. Um, these little appointments here and another little appointment there and another one here. And um, we developed a, a trust. And I think that's really important um, is to be respected with dignity. Um, she didn't give up on you. No, she, she didn't. She wanted to be a part of your life. Yeah. And now you're helping other people. Yes, kind of like the lantern. We can also be a light that shines others um, out of that darkness. So, And so do you... Do you engage with other victims themselves in Peoria Home, or do you more talk about programmatic things? Um, in the beginning, um, I've been there since the beginning of the formatting, um, the the fundraisers, uh, the coming up with the program. The program development. Development. Um, I also was on the panel um, when the women were coming in. Okay. Um, mentor the women. Um, and do they find that it's easier to relate to you because you've gone through it and they feel like you understand them? Absolutely. They yeah. tell me all the time that um, and they want me, that it's a lot easier to talk to because I've been there. Yeah. And, and watching what the, the achievements and the things that I've overcome gives them the inspiration that they can as well. And hope, right? Yeah, absolutely. Hope that you can get through it. Well, it's beautiful. It's beautiful that you're willing to share your story and and spend your time to help other people get through it because I think that's one of the biggest issues we have is that people just sweep it under the rug and they don't talk about it. And I mean, when I actually shared my story, 30 out of 45 of my closest friends said, oh, guess what, me too, right? But I never would have known if I hadn't been willing to share the story. And I just feel like if more people would talk about it, we could get further along in fixing the actual issues behind it. Amazing. So what kind of education programs do you guys offer for people who have been victims? So um, initially, when people come in, they go through an orientation, and we sit down with them and talk about what they think their needs are and what their goals are for their recovery. Um, If they need to complete a high school education, we'll get get them connected to a GED program or back in school. Um, If they want to go to college, we'll help get them set up for that. Um, We also provide some life skills classes in the home because when you've been living on the streets for a Mm -hmm. long, long time, um, you don't have a lot of the basic skills that you and I take for granted. Like you don't know how to work on a budget. You don't know how to do a meal plan. You don't know how to shop for your kids. Oh, true. Very true. And so we all take those things for granted. And it can be really difficult for women trying to reintegrate if they don't have those skills. So we offer all of those kinds of things and then connect also with other service providers in the community who are doing a lot of education programs. Well, that was going to be my next question is how does Providence and other community partners, how are they helping to support Peoria Home? Um, Providence has provided some sponsorship for our fundraisers, and um, they have made donations to the program. Other community partners, like uh, Housing Hope, um, they have a lot of training programs that our women can take um, as well. Since we're a pretty small organization, we only can house up to four women at a time. Okay. Uh, we it, It's hard to develop uh, classes for just four people sometimes, mm-hmm. so getting them enrolled in other programs that already exist in the community is a great way to partner with with other community organizations. 
So if you can see house four people at a time, is there a wait list? Yes. Okay. I receive calls every month from women all over the country looking for a safe place to go, um, from women locally looking for a safe place to be. And so, yes, we usually have a wait list of about five to six people at a time. So what would allow you to have more people? Is it, is it space? Is it dollars? Is it staffing? Is it all of the above? Primarily funding, mm-hmm. um, because it takes a lot to open a house. And if sure. it wasn't for the gift of one of our board members, we wouldn't have the house we have right now. So it's funding, and we're all privately funded. So ordinary citizens donating to us is how our program is funded. We get no federal or state funding at this point in time. So funding is a huge issue. The house we can we can't have by code any more than four women living in it at a time, so um, that limits us. And staffing, I think we're okay. We could add a second house with the staff we have. They might not think so. But. <laughs> so for those listening, they could help you by donating. Correct. It, a house if you have one, and you would be so gracious, right? Right. But even just dollars at this point in time would help. Yes. Okay, and where would people go in order to learn more or to donate? PeoriaHome.org. PeoriaHome.org. Perfect. Um, well, let's go back to sex trafficking for a bit because that's where a lot of the questions came in. How prevalent is sex trafficking in Washington? And you mentioned the I-5 corridor earlier and we're close to Canada, but how, how big is it? So um, statistics are, are hard to gather on Um, hard numbers for sex trafficking victims because people don't Mm self-report. So statistics are collected from uh, identifying patients in the emergency department, uh, people seeking services with other types of service providers. And, but Polaris, um, which is a great website, has a lot of statistics. And for Washington, they um, are looking at about 1,100 people annually Uh, potentially being trafficked here in the state. And the high centers of trafficking are up and down the I-5 corridor here, but it also happens in every part of the state. So um, there are 593 hard cases reported in Washington, but up to 1,100, 1,200 potential victims. Well, for people listening who... We all hear sex trafficking, but we don't necessarily know what constitutes sex trafficking. What do you consider to be a sex trafficked person? Anyone who is, let's see, how do I say this? So sex trafficking means the exchange of sexual services for anything of value. So whether it's food, shelter, money, Mm. drugs, whatever that is. And it usually involves the control by somebody else, but not always. And traffickers can be anybody. So it could be parents selling their children out of their home. And Mm. we've seen that here in Snohomish County. It could be a boyfriend selling his girlfriend. Um, It could be a family member. It could be a coach. It could be a teacher. It could be just about anybody, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. So nothing's really surprising you at this point in time. No. No. So tell me, why are you so passionate about helping victims of abuse and trafficking? So I got into forensic nursing um, 
primarily because of my own history. While I haven't been trafficked, I was the victim of sexual and physical abuse at the hands of my stepfather for 12 years of my life. Mm. And it took a long time to recover from that. And also in um, 1996, my daughter, who was 12 at the time, was was kidnapped by a registered sex offender here in the state. And when she was recovered, um, she did not have a medical exam. She went to a therapist, but the therapist didn't have training in really deep trauma. Um, And the therapist actually said that she felt like she was doing more harm than good. Um, So services weren't around. And I felt like this was a way for me to give back and make sure that when I encountered victims of sexual violence or child abuse, that they got the care that they really needed. That is heartbreaking. And I'm just so impressed by what you do and the fact that you give back in such a, a meaningful way. It's, I, I really hope that you both pat yourselves on the back all the time because what you're doing matters so much. Um, what, what are some of the warning signs that people should be looking for to see, you know, if you think somebody's been involved in sex trafficking, what should we look for? I would say um, bruises on the body. Um, someone who um, is kind of like lost touch of reality, but just going with emotion, sadness in the face, um, they, who they're with. Um, if they have uh, marks on their hands um, or somewhere on the body that's tattooed, this, um, the ones I had come across was on the neck. Mm-hmm. Um, Are there behavioral health, mental health issues that typically you see more with sex trafficking victims than anyone else? Because you mentioned kind of a checked out type of just going with the flow. Yeah, lots of times you disassociate to keep going, and lots of times you're also drugged um, in order to just get up and survive every day. And it becomes a repetitive pattern. You get to know um, how to survive in that. So um, you'll keep doing what you have to do to survive. I think when we see this portrayed on TV, it's always kind of in like a, a one person trafficking a bunch of people. And so they kind of have developed these relationships, but it's often just individual, correct? It's just you're on your own. Um, that can be. I mean, there's a difference between prostitution and sex trafficking. And with all due respect to those who do prostitute or in the sex trade on their own account, that's separate from those who are being manipulated, coerced, or forced into um, giving these favors and they don't get nothing in return. Um, you can also be trafficked and and still on your own accord um, because it's all you know, it's a mental, um, it's a mental place that you have nowhere else to go. You don't know what else to do. You're cold, you're hungry, you're scared. And often you find that there's people out there that judge you. Um, uh, there was a lot of uh, task force um, when I came out. It was we have a lot more services now than we did back then. But I didn't trust anyone. Even the the task force and the police officers and the social workers judged me and made me feel so little that I thought I belonged there. And um, I kept finding myself back into that same circle. It does happen a lot, right, with victims who are quote unquote saved, and then they go back into the lifestyle because it is all they know, and they don't they don't have any other options. Well, when you come out of it, you don't know what is their this is all you know to survive and your mind gets trained. It's almost like that down, what is it called? The Stockholm syndrome, yes, you know? Yes. And um, 
it's a safer place because you know how to maneuver in there. You know what to expect. You know if you're going to get beat, if you're going to get, you know, even in that life, it's unpredictable because they, they have um, extensive means of manipulation to keep you under control, um, mainly fear or a basic need, um, even if it's the drugs or food. Uh, they will withhold all of that from you. So uh, much ugliness in this. Other things that we look for, especially um, in the emergency room, is we look for patients that are there with somebody who's very controlling, who will not mm-hmm. separate from them, who answers all the questions for them. Um, and so we look for that. We look for things that don't make sense. If a teen is telling you that they're living on the streets and they're couch surfing, but they've got coach bags and their nails are done, um, somebody's paying for that. Mm-hmm. They're not getting that on their own. And again, tattoos. Uh, A tattoo, everybody gets a tattoo. There's a story attached with it. Um, So I always ask patients to tell me about their tattoos. Tell me about that. What does that mean for you? Oh, interesting. Um, Because there's a story. And sometimes that's a way to get people to open up and talk to you is to just ask questions about and, and young girls, I'll say, where do you get your nails done? They look really nice, you know. Unfortunately, I can't have my nails done in my line of work, but, you know, where do you get yours done? So just being aware of things that don't add up. Very, very smart, very smart. Well, we're going to take another quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue the conversation talking about Peoria Home and the um, sex trafficking issues in Washington State. Got me feeling like the elephant in every room I'm walking into. Yeah, we started out innocent till I got pulled right into your issue. Yeah, yeah. I'm tired of sending hugs and kisses. Uh, I'm tired of all your burning bridges. It's like, damn, why you gotta be so cold in the summertime? Summertime, I was really rooting for you.
was really rooting for you, yeah, yeah. I was really rooting for you. Oh, I was really rooting for you. future of health. I here want to give you a quick reminder that anyone affected by sex trafficking can find support at the National Human Trafficking Hotline by calling 1-888-373-7888. And that isn't just people who find themselves affected, but it's people who think that they may know somebody who's affected. So please reach out if you need to. 
So we're back with Paula and Shelley, and we're talking about sex trafficking. Um, tell me a little bit about how Peoria Home helps someone who has recently, quote unquote, gotten out or been rescued. So um, Peoria Home is a two-year residential recovery program. Um, women come to us when they're ready to. There's a lot of talk on the street and in the community about why don't you rescue people. People have to be ready to mm -hmm. make that change. And it's a very difficult and frightening change to make. But when they are ready, um, we're there to help them and to walk alongside them as they go through their journey. It is. I think it's interesting because it's the same. We hear the same a lot about people who are homeless on the street. The people want to go save them and take them into their home, but they're not ready. They're not ready to live that life. They're not ready to give up. And m many of them are there for different reasons. So I think it is important. How does how does somebody become ready? Like, what is it that clicks for them or makes them say, I'm ready to be out of this life? Desperation. Okay. When the light is almost out and you have had enough of the abuse and just something in psych, I'm going to say somewhere something or someone gives them hope. So a lot of what we do when we encounter victims in the emergency department is we plant seeds, okay. seeds of hope because we provide them with a number to call when they're ready. We provide them with the knowledge that there are services available. And unfortunately, there aren't enough services available. Mm -hmm. um, we really need here in Snohomish County an emergency shelter for victims of trafficking because we don't have that right now. Really? No, there's, there's no emergency place. So when law enforcement, you know, will call me and say that I'm with a woman, she wants to get out, we have no emergency placement for anybody to go. And that is where my passion jumps in because when women are ready to jump, there's no safety net. Yeah. When they are saying, you talk about rescue, where are you going to rescue them to? Right. So it's not even about rescuing. You know, it's about, may, we don't trust you don't trust anyone. You don't trust the police out there because of the judgment. You don't trust the people out there because they've used you, manipulated you, abused you in such levels. And just your your dignity and your respect of every part of your being of who you are is is gone. Yeah. So you got to give them trust and, and, and some kind of hold that they know. And it's going to be by awareness and these things available because if they are ready to jump and it's the most dangerous time is when they're ready to leave. It's for domestic violence, yes. for uh, and relationships, for sex trafficking. Because once you leave and they find you, the consequences could be fatal. How do yeah. we how do we fix this? How do we like how do we actually get then an emergency location for them? Is it the government's responsibility? Is it private funding? It's private funding. <laughs> It, it, I would not depend on the government for funding for an emergency shelter because the funding might be there for a year and then it's gone and then what do you do? So it's from private donors, it's from private foundations that the money comes from. But um, to come into Peoria, a woman needs to be clean and sober for 30 days. Okay. So when law enforcement calls us and they're with someone, we may be able to help facilitate getting them into a 30-day treatment program. But then if we don't have an opening in the house when she's done with that 30 days, where do they go? Um, Snohomish County had no services for trafficking victims prior to the opening of Peoria Home. And so right now we have four beds. Across the country, there's only about 200 beds 
Really? For women trying to exit the sex trade. Across the whole country? Across the entire country. How is this possible? Because it's not a priority. I'm flabbergasted right now because we're in this area where you've got tech central, you've got billions and billions and billions of dollars, and you, you, you don't have a place for people who are trying to get out of a desperate situation. Correct. I think it has a lot to do with the misconceptions of sex trafficking and that people make it and are in there as a choice or that they're drug addicts or that they have mental health issues or that they're, you know, they're not above coming out or spending that time that somehow they made it there by choice. And who, who would choose this life? I'm sorry. I, I challenged that. Who would choose that life? When I was a little girl, I dreamed of having, um, becoming a nurse. I dreamed yeah. of um, a little fence with some kids and a husband. Um, that's what I dreamed of. I didn't know and dream that one day that I would be caught in a system that I couldn't get out of. And, uh, and just, I mean, the torment and the rape and the beatings, um, the manipulation and the head games of, you know, of just being belittled so much. That wasn't my goal is to come out there. You know, that wasn't, that wasn't my goal as a child. It is something that happened along the way for many different reasons that I am now working on. And, um, and one of the biggest things is being sitting here in this seat, making other people aware. Yes. It's so important to get this message. Mm -hmm. She, when she talks about this, you know, a little girl wanting whatever little girl wants, probably a pony and a new Barbie, what causes this? How how are especially kids, but how are people getting into this world? So 90% of people involved in the sex trade and in trafficking were sexually abused in their own homes as children. And that early childhood trauma sets the trajectory for drug abuse, mental health issues, trafficking. You grow up in an abusive home um, and some sweet-talking guy comes along and says, I'll take care of you. Come with me. I'll protect you. I'll provide you with all the things that you're not getting at home. I'll love you. Who's not going to go? Easy manipulation. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you talked about having to come into the program 30 days clean and sober. How mm-hmm. do you do, do you partner with other people in the community to get them from out of the system into that 30 days before they get to you? We do. We have quite a few relationships built with recovery programs here in the county. And we often get referrals from those recovery programs. Women will get into recovery and, and disclose that they've been being trafficked and we'll get a phone call. And um, we'll start working with that woman while she's still in recovery and going through the screening process and talking to them about what the program is because it's not a halfway house. It is a program. There's work that you have to do to live in the home. Um, And so we'll make sure that she's really ready for that and committed to that. The very first phase of the program is very, very difficult. It's 90 days, no cell phone, no Internet access to cut off those connections to your previous life. To reprogramming, basically. Yes. Mm -hmm. And that's a really difficult thing for women to do. Well, I want to talk through more of kind of what your program is, because I know you you talk about phases of it. But before we do that, you talked about, especially in the emergency room, you you give them a number to call. You give them, how do you do that? Do you have to separate them from the person who brought them in? Sometimes. You know, and the nice thing about healthcare is... uh, you know, there's, there's always things that we do in healthcare where we need to separate 
right. the patient from whoever came in with them. And those are the times where you can talk to them in private, even if it's just for a couple of minutes on the way to the CT scanner or maybe on the way to the bathroom to get a urine specimen. It gives you that very narrow window of opportunity to ask somebody, are you safe? Do you need help? How can we help you right now today? And just providing a little slip of paper that they can tuck away maybe in the bottom of their shoe or someplace where it won't be found. That doesn't say what the number's to, but they know that it's for services or for help. It must be heartbreaking to have to watch them leave and know that you can't help them right then. It's very heartbreaking. And we've had women come into Peoria Home and choose to go back. Mm -hmm. And that is heartbreaking as well. Um, Thank you, everybody, for joining us today. Um, And to everyone for listening and sending in your questions. We look forward to a future topic with more experts from Providence St. Joseph Health. Make sure to follow us on social media at PSJH on Twitter and on Instagram and under Providence St. Joseph Health on Facebook. To learn more about our mission, programs, and services, visit future.psjhealth.org. Thank you.